In this episode of the ESG Beat, we will be speaking with Dorothy Lund, Professor of Law at the USC Gould School of Law. Professor Lund focuses her research and scholarship on corporate law, corporate governance, securities regulation, and mergers and acquisitions. Her recent work explores how social norms are impacting corporate governance. And today we will discuss her paper, Sexual Harassment and Corporate Law, co-authored with Daniel Hamill. That paper explores the impact of the Me Too movement on director and officer liability. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Dorothy. Thank you so much, Amelia. I'm really honored to be here. So this expert beat will focus on Professor Lund's groundbreaking article, Sexual Harassment and Corporate Law, co-authored with Professor Daniel Hemmel. Your article was the first one to explore whether corporate law actually requires boards to prevent or to disclose sexual harassment. And I'm really excited to explore this topic with you today. Thank you. It's a really important topic, and I'm glad that we're getting to talk about it here. So the Me Too movement coincided, of course, with an increase in the number of shareholders filing lawsuits against directors and officers. Can you give our audience a sense of the landscape before and after the Me Too movement? Yeah, sure. So before Me Too, these shareholder suits were pretty rare. I think I can count four for the Me Too movement. The first one we were able to find was filed in the wake of a 1998 magazine story that exposed how ICN CEO, which is today better known as Valiant, uh, that his, the ICN CEO, Milan Panic, sexually harassed five employees. And so in the wake of that story, we get the first shareholder suit targeting the board of directors and arguing that the board had breached its fiduciary duties by covering up and enabling the CEO's harassment of employees. And, you know, there's some pretty shocking allegations, including that the, the board guaranteed a multi-million dollar loan uh, to settle a fraternity suit against the CEO. And so this, this complaint wasn't successful. The suit was dismissed. But this, I think, was the first indication that, you know, directors and officers could face liability themselves for enabling workplace misconduct and sexual harassment. And, you know, after that, there was a suit at HP, American Apparel, CT Partners, and and none of these were successful, um, despite containing some pretty shocking allegations about what these executives were doing and how the board responded to the misconduct. And and after Me Too, we've really seen an uptick in these suits. I can count at least nine. You may know more of more than than that. I feel like every time I open my, you know, my news, there's a new suit. And some of these have been, been successful, unlike the ones pre-Me Too. Some of them have led to large settlements for plaintiffs. So the landscape, I, I do think, is quite different now. And why do you think that the Me Too movement resulted in shareholders looking to the board in particular? Yeah, I think this is a great question. I think there are two things going on here. The first is sort of this general understanding in the wake of Caremark, a 1996 decision out of out of the Delaware Chancery Court, that uh, you know the board is really duty bound to oversee compliance and risk management in a meaningful way, and the failure to do so uh, could could lead to liability. Uh, I think an, another big component of that this that's a little bit more recent is I think there's a growing understanding of that you know sexual harassment is really damaging, not just to victims, but also to shareholders. And in saying this, I don't want to diminish the harm that victims 
go through in their injuries or suggest that shareholder harm is in any way close to the victim harm, but only that, you know, one of the big lessons I think for me too is that sexual harassment is a problem for business too. And you can see a couple of prominent examples. I mean, think about the Weinstein company. It went bankrupt and no longer exists in the wake of the allegations against Harvey Weinstein and Wynn Resorts, you see the stock price falling 40% on the day that the allegation, allegations against Steve Wynn were exposed. And the company has since faced all sorts of regulatory problems direct as a direct result of, of his misconduct and go on. You know, there's a lot of examples that really show that this is a big business risk. This is a big problem for shareholders. And so what Me Too really did is it created a business risk where one didn't exist before. Now, with that background, can you articulate the different theories of director liability that shareholders are pursuing? Yeah, there. so I think there are basically four categories of claims. You know, one, the first and the most simple is you could have a fiduciary who's a harasser, maybe a director or an officer who's harassing employees and, you know, think Harvey Weinstein. So there you have a really straightforward cause of action. You know, corporate fiduciaries are violating their duties of care and loyalty when they harass employees. So easy. I think the, the second one that we're seeing more and more is this care mark theory. And this is alleging that You've got a board of directors that's failing in that monitoring capacity. They, you know, they have a duty to make sure that uh, employees aren't harassed. And under certain circumstances, the failure to monitor harassment could lead to liability. Uh, the other claim that I think is, has gained a lot of traction is, this, is a hook to securities law. So anytime you have an officer, director, making an inaccurate statement or a misleading statement regarding workplace sexual misconduct, they could face potential liability there. And those are, I think, the three strongest. There's a fourth claim that is, is, I think, the hardest, and this is kind of an enabling claim. So if you have a, a fiduciary who enables harassment to continue, so you can think again of the Weinstein Company Board, and there the allegations were that the board was settling lawsuits over and over again without taking any action, protecting the harasser, not taking action against them. There, there could be an argument that the that you breach your fiduciary duties by enabling harassment to continue. This one is actually the ha- the hardest to prove and establish under Delaware law, but it also exists. So that's the I think those are the universe of claims that that are possible. So I'd like to dig into some of these series of liability. But before we move on, I wanted to have you say a bit more about the normative issues. I mean, what are the shortcomings of corporate law to address the risk of harassment? And you talk about this in your paper. And can you elaborate on some of the ethical considerations that you grappled with? Yeah, yeah, we we struggled with this question. I think one shortcoming is one that I briefly mentioned earlier, when, we, when you talk about sexual harassment, it's a little weird to be saying, oh, the shareholders are the victims. And in thinking about sharehold, you know, shareholder suits as a vehicle for addressing this problem, a major shortcoming is that you don't, you're not compensating victims at all. And you can see this playing out in this, this recent litigation against Signet Jewelers. So mm-hmm. there were hundreds of employees who alleged that they were sexually harassed. And that, you know, the the resolution of those claims of discrimination, um, of harassment, that's still that's still plowing forward in court slowly. And who knows what the outcome is going to be? Meanwhile, shareholders have set, settled their uh, securities fraud suit for two hundred forty million dollars. 
so see the inequity of, of compensation where the possibility that the these primary victims might not be compensated and if they do it might take a really long time there's also this related problem that we call we talk about discursive harm right and it comes from again the weirdness of when we talk about sexual harassment in terms of injury to shareholders we don't want to communicate to people that man the really bad thing about sexual harassment is it's terrible for shareholders again you know you don't don't want to minimize the human tragedy that these victims are enduring so you know the the way that i've sort of reconciled this is that you know i think that we should continue to think about corporate law as playing a useful function here but it, we should remember that corporate law is always going to be a complement to other legal protections designed to compensate victims uh so, you know, ultimately, I think this problem is sufficiently pervasive that we we do need to address it from multiple fronts, uh, but that we should be careful about the messaging and the way we talk about liability here. And and I have to say that you do a terrific job articulating that tension in your paper. I, I have been impressed, although, in, and in particular, Signet Jewelers is, is a good case in that regard. Uh, the corporate governance reforms that companies have made either voluntarily, and I put voluntarily in quotes, or as a result of negotiated settlements of these shareholder suits have really gone to addressing power differentials in the companies, which doesn't address uh, past harm by victims, but is for looking yeah. And, you know, seems to have an authentic commitment to reforming culture as opposed to avoiding legal liability. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, in a different paper, I was just talking about some of these corporate governance reforms as a positive example. You know, usually these reforms secured in the wake of litigation get a lot of flack from, from academics and, and practitioners. They, you know, oh, you're settling, you know, the settlement is ne meaningless because you're just getting some petty disclosure. But I think this is actually, in a few, a few of these settlements, you've seen really promising corporate governance developments. That, you know, I think about 21st Century Fox and there they agreed to establish a, a council, uh, work, it's a workplace and inclusion council that really addresses this problem head-on, staffed with all kinds of great people. So, you know, time will tell how that plays out and whether it makes a difference, but I, I completely agree with you that, that these reforms are really interesting and promising. So now I'd like to turn to the different theories of liability. And just to recap very quickly, there are four. So Dorothy, can you quickly go through those four, and then I'd like to uh, dig into a couple of them in more depth. Yeah, so you've got, you know, first you've got your fiduciary harasser. Second, you've got this fiduciary who's the failed monitor, and that's the Caremark claim. Then you've got the securities law claims, you know, the failure to disclose information was, was actionable. And finally, the hardest one, which is that, well, you've got a fiduciary who somehow through their conduct enabled some uh, illegal actions to, to go on. So I'd like to dig into the second and the third, starting with the second, what's widely known as the Caremark theory. Can you break that down for us? Yeah, sure. So this is essentially a claim that the directors breached their duty of loyalty by failing to exercise oversight of the company. And these are really challenging claims to prevail on. In the 1996 
case, Caremark, that, you know, coined this, this theory, the court said, well, this is probably the most difficult theory in corporation law on which a plaintiff might win. So this isn't an easy claim to bring, although we've seen them, the court be increasingly receptive to them. But basically to prevail, you basically, you have to show that the directors utterly failed to um, implement reporting systems or controls. So, you know, you just made no attempt to, to handle compliance in this important area. Or you have to you can establish that the board knew that there was some evidence that mis of misconduct that was going on. This is known as you know you're, there's some red flags that you're not responding to, and you you know you consciously failed to address it. So either of those paths would allow a plaintiff to pay up, to prevail. And like I said, you know this is a tricky claim to win, but very very recently in Delaware, two just there were two Caremark claims that made it past the motion to dismiss stage, which really underscores the importance of board engagement and discussions about business risk, compliance. And I think as these cases make clear, sexual harassment is, is an, a big source of business risk. So to be totally good under your Caremark duty, you have to, you have to establish that you've thought about this, you've implemented some reporting system, and then you're responding to red flags. Otherwise, you could be liable. And so the, the cases in Delaware also um, kind of lead me to my next question, which is what your take is on whether our evolving social norms with respect to sexual harassment um, could impact the success of future claims? Yeah. So I think this, that my answer is a little circular, but I do think that the more that our society views sexual harassment as unacceptable, the greater the business risk is in tolerating it and not responding to it. So the greater the feasibility of a Caremark claim. So, you know, you might say, well, you know, 50, 60 years ago, employee sexual harassment didn't pose a major business risk. The boards didn't need to take it seriously, but it's really clear today. And I, could rattle off a few examples. Win, Fox News, CBS, uh, LaCroix, I mean, there, the list goes on. Um, sexual harassment is a big problem for companies and it has a lasting impact on the business. There's reputational consequences, regulatory consequences, you know, all kinds of issues in terms of talent, uh, leaving um, productivity, employee productivity. So, you know, the more that we as a society view sexual harassment as reprehensible, I think the the more that officers and, and, and boards of directors need will need to focus on it as a matter of their fiduciary duty. So yes, I do think our evolving social norms do improve. And, and I think this is one of the reasons why you've seen this shift um, and the success of these, these cases in the wake of Me Too. The substance of the allegations hasn't changed. It's the way that the court views uh, these allegations in this new environment, uh, that's really the big change. That's really interesting. So whether or not something is a red flag under Caremark um, is influenced by society's expectations. Um, yes, absolutely. And whether or not, you know, I think in, in this recent March and uh, decision from Delaware that, that did embrace this, that, you know, the court makes it distinguishes between, you know, oh, you really, you as a board of directors have to focus on big business risks. You know, there's no, there's no reason to put your head in the sand and ignore things that are, that could be a substantial issue for the company. So what's, 
what's a substantial issue for the company? You know, 50 years ago, you could make the argument that sexual harassment didn't rise to that level. Today, there's no question. I mean, there's no question that sexual harassment is a substantial, serious business risk and something the boards need to be, be taking seriously. So, so moving on to the second most prevalent theory of liability in this in these cases, which is a failure to disclose risks or securities liability. Can you describe that theory for us? Yeah, so this is primarily comes from Rule 10b-5 of the Securities and Exchange Act. Uh, publicly traded companies can be held liable for untrue statements of material fact and for material omission. So on the first one, if a company says something like, we have a no tolerance for sexual harassment policy, we do not tolerate it under any circumstances, and later it comes to light that, oh, well, they did in fact tolerate sexual harassment, they were enabling sexual harassment by employees, by executives, a shareholder could say, hey, what you said was an untrue statement of material fact, and it was material misleading um, in light of what you were really doing. And, you know, for the material omission, a shareholder could say, well, the failure to disclose known harassment by some top executive, uh, that was that was material to my decision to invest. And by the way, materiality is defined as something that a reasonable investor would, would care about. So, you know, you could you can make the argument that, well, yeah, I, I probably would like to know if, if uh, Steve Wynn is harassing people, um, given that the stock price fell 40 percent when, when that was announced. You know, that's something that needed to be disclosed and a failure to do so with a material emission. Yeah, it's very interesting. It creates fascinating line drawing problems as so many security disclosure cases do. But in this case, I've looked at some of the complaints and, you know, the ones against Nike and Google come to mind. They fault the board for its failure to disclose a bro culture or a bro grammar culture. Where should uh, companies draw the line with respect to what to disclose? Yeah, you're right. It's tough. I mean, so you know, companies don't need to disclose everything. And, and I think, you know, the line here is really governed by that material materiality standard. You know, this is what do you think the typical investor would consider this important uh, when deciding whether to invest? That's what the Supreme Court has essentially said materiality is. So, you know, the bro culture, I think it depends. You know, I think the plaintiffs would need to convince the court that some reasonable investor would think that it's important to know about that. And you frame this or as not only just a cultural problem, but a serious lack of diversity that's making it hard for the company to navigate, you know, risky terrain, to see problems, uh, to identify opportunities. Um, or if, it, you know, this is lack of diversity is contributing to an environment that's hostile to women and minorities. Well, you can start to see how that would lead to business risk, you know, for a company like Nike, consumer products company, brand is really important. Um, reputation is really important. Okay, you're starting to see a story from materiality there. Um, so again, I think I think it's, it, it's a, this is the a hedgy answer, but I think it really depends on whether or not you can, can there's a narrative or uh, the set of facts that would convince the court that this could be important to somebody who's deciding whether to invest in the company. I'd like to move to the success of these lawsuits. So first, you know, have any plaintiffs prevailed on their claims under either theory of liability? And then whether or not they have, 
does that define success? Yeah. So, you know, I view the the last couple of months, I've seen a lot of what I would call successes. As we talked about at the very beginning of this, this discussion, pre me to these these suits didn't even come close. They were thrown out of court right away. Plaintiffs walked away empty-handed. May may explain why there weren't so many of them. So in the last few months and and year or so, there, I, there you know we've seen three at least three victories. So three that I um, I can think of. So one is involving Signet Jewelers, and there the there were securities fraud claims about. You know, the company had basically made some statements about how it made employment and promotion decisions thinking about merit. Um, and the plaintiff said, actually, it looks like you were making employment decisions based on sexual favors. And the court said, OK, that you've you've pled, a, uh, you're, uh, you've you've survived the motion to dismiss and we're going to let your, your case go forward. And this caused the company to settle for two hundred forty million dollars. So I think that's a pretty big victory. Sure. Uh, and then in when we saw there that the breach of fiduciary claims also survived a motion to dismiss. So, and that led the company to sell for $90 million and, and agree to a host of governance reforms. And this is, you know, the recover, the monetary uh, damage settlement in itself was one of the largest derivative suit settlements in history. So that was a big win. And before that, uh, we had 21st Century Fox and there, they immediately settled the breach of fiduciary claims against the company for not also again ninety million dollars plus a ho- plus a host of corporate governance reforms. So, you know, in three instances, we've seen pretty substantial victories for plaintiffs. To me, is is strong evidence in favor of my view that you know that Me Too movement has really changed the litigation environment uh, for these claims. I completely agree with you, and the settlement amounts are certainly impressive. Uh, but so are the corporate governance reforms. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. So moving beyond the Me Too movement, we can't ignore that we are recording this in the midst of a global pandemic. And I know that your recent work is looking at social risks as well. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a debate raging as to whether social and environmental risks will play more heavily in the board's fiduciary duties or whether the pendulum will swing back to a more narrow articulation. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, this is, this is a great question. And it's very much on my mind. And I, and I too, I kind of swing back and forth. My prediction is that I think this pandemic is going to cause boards and investors to think really broadly about risk and you know how how we should prepare a response to various risks that could affect our operations including risks created by ESG issues so people were really caught off guard by the pandemic and i think there's going to be a reckoning where they they come back to to think about well what else could lead to an operational crisis in the future and how do we plan and respond to it? And at, at this very moment, I think certain ESG issues, and, and I, by this I really mean employee issues, are are at the forefront of people's minds. You know, I think companies and investors and definitely people external to companies are, are understanding that wow, employees really are at the heart of the business and we really need to put their health and well-being first. And the companies that aren't doing that are really facing a lot of blowback. So in this immediate 
moment, I think employee issues are going to be very much on people's minds. And hopefully that mindset of employee protection, you know, carries forward, even as the pandemic, hopefully at some point abates. I, I agree with you. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading your upcoming papers on corporate purpose and on overseeing environmental and social risks. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to discuss your work with us today and be well. Thank you so much. This is, was a lot of fun. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG Beat with me today.